The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, my name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Heritage. We're glad that you're worshiping with us today. You're catching us near the tail end of a sermon series that we had begun back in kind of early September. It's a discipleship sermon series. We're calling it Deeper, and we're asking this question and have been asking this question for six weeks. Today is our seventh week. How do people grow? And what we've been doing over the last several weeks is looking at different markers of discipleship. And so as we talk about discipleship, of course we need to talk about what that means. And so for for each week we have sort of repeated these statements that are true about us as a church. We are a a gospel-centered body of believers dedicated to making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. That's who we are as a church. We've defined a disciple here in, in this way. We believe a disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and is leading others to follow Jesus. That's a consistent definition that we hold to here as we seek to make disciples. We've learned to define discipleship as this walking with Jesus as the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus so that we can live in love as Jesus did for the glory of God. That's discipleship, this process of us confessing and repenting and journeying towards Jesus and and figuring out what it means for us to walk in obedience with him as we learn to surrender every bit of our life over to him. And as we've shared in previous weeks, for anyone who's been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you know that oftentimes this journey is several steps forward and maybe a couple steps back and and fighting through hard things and hard seasons and good seasons and, and great things things. And and as we look at the trajectory of our life, our hope is that we as disciples continually walk faithfully with Jesus, growing in godliness, that he might receive the glory as we learn to love people and live the way he does for his glory. So that's what we've been chatting about. And and, and then up to this point, we've covered these six different markers of discipleship over the last six weeks. We've talked about God-glorifying stewardship and authentic worship marked by love and gospel purity and mature doctrine and missional lifestyle, and we've talked about emotional health. Last week, if you were here, we talked about authentic worship marked by relationship. And this is this, this marker of discipleship that measures the degree to which we offer relationally all of who we are to God in response to the worthiness of all that God is. And that brings us up to today, week seven. Today we talk about godly character. When we talk about godly character, we are measuring the degree to which our words, our deeds, and attitudes flow from a Christ-like heart. It's It's this being before doing. It's this being a person of God. It's it's having our doing flow from a deep being and a deep abiding in God. It's having God by his spirit transform our very hearts that Our character may be his character. It's Christ's likeness in us and through us. Godly character. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 6? We're going to be in the section in Luke's gospel that's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain in opposition to the Sermon on the Mount. And it's similar in format to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's a different sermon. And in Luke chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 43, 44, and 45. This is near the tail end of a sermon that Luke records for us that Jesus preached. In this, in this section of Scripture, right before the sermon, Jesus selected and, and, and the, the Gospel of Luke names his 12 disciples. So it's, it's the beginning of his ministry. It's his Galilean ministry. He's got these new disciples. He's concerning himself with shaping and forming them to be his disciples after his departure. That's why we look to the Gospels as we try to understand discipleship. And then Jesus begins the sermon much in the same way he began the Sermon on the Mount, with proclaiming the blessings of his kingdom and the woes associated with those blessings. 
And then Jesus talks about uh, loving enemies and, and being merciful and about forgiveness. He talks about donning the posture of a learner and a disciple. He talks about addressing the plank in your own eye before you point out the speck in your brother's eye. And then all of that leads us up to this, this, this metaphor near the tail end of the ministry or this preaching of Jesus. You could even say that the earlier text is Jesus identifying both the good fruit and the bad fruit. Uh, the good fruit of a disciple being blessing and compassion and forgiveness and the bad fruit being the opposite of those things. And then Jesus says this beginning in verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure in, of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We'll spend more time more meaningfully unpacking that text. But one thing I want you to notice before we pray, I want you to notice the word of the use of the word heart here in verse 46. Or verse 45, rather. Twice, Jesus mentions the word heart. That Greek word is the word cardia. It's where we get the word cardiac. And what it's referring to here isn't the muscle that lives within the chest of a person. It's referring to the very center of all physical and spiritual life. The heart is being the way we use heart metaphorically, the very, the very core of the human being, the very center of them where, 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 where their humanity resides. That's what he's talking about here. And as we, as, we, as we look at this through the lens of character, we recognize that character is something that flows from the heart. Our character is a reflection of who we really are. And who we really are is what resides in our heart. I read this week that a person's character is the sum of his or her disposition, thoughts, intentions, desires, and actions, good, bad, and ugly. The Proverbs and all of Scripture, but the Proverbs especially speak of our character Proverbs 11 verse 3 says the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. There's this dichotomy or this, 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 this scale between treacherous character and, 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 and character that is filled with integrity. And, and it's speaking about the heart. I'm mindful of what the scriptures say about heart. Jeremiah, the prophet, said that the heart is deceitful above all things. And so if you and I are left to our own devices without the intervention of God, we have a deceitful heart that's going to misguide us. Our character is not going to be godly. But I'm also mindful of what God said to the prophet Ezekiel, speaking of the, the new covenant, looking forward to the coming of Jesus. God said through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Our God, through the work of his son Jesus, by the regenerating power of the Spirit, replaces our stony, stubborn, rebellious heart. And he gives us a tender, responsive heart, a new heart that we might have hope. That as we speak about this thing of godly character, it is not up to our own vices, our own strengths, our own ingenuity. But it is a work of our God within us by the power of his Spirit to create in us a heart from which godly character may flow. Let's talk about that, but first let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for the men and women you've gathered here today. Lord, and I know as we gather here, you know, God, that as we, as we are honest about the contents of our heart today, each, each and every one of us before you, 
God, I know that there are things that exist within our heart. There's, there's aspects to our character that, that need refining and sanctifying. My guess today, God, is that there are many of us in here as we begin to talk about the contents of our heart that, God, I ask and I pray that by the conviction of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would, you would raise up those areas in our life where we need confession and repentance. God, with great joy, I pray that you would teach us today to turn our, our whole selves over to you, that by your Spirit you would continue a work in us, that you would continue to shape and mold our hearts, that the fruit of our life would be fruit that's honoring to you and reflective of the heart of your Son, Jesus. So God, we invite you to meet us in this place today. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of my least favorite verses in all of Scripture is the end of verse 45. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isn't that a horrible verse? When I hear that verse, I begin to replay in my mind the things that my mouth has said and the words that my mind has thought. And I really wish that it wasn't true. What I like to say when I say to people I love or people I don't love, when I say mean or hurtful or, or ugly things, I would like to say, oh, I didn't really mean that. But then I read this verse and it's like, well, ugh. out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak. I've shared in the past that years ago someone told me once that human beings are like tubes of toothpaste. It doesn't matter what's on the outside because whenever they're squeezed, what's on the inside comes out. And you can't hide that. It's just the truth. It doesn't matter what the packaging looks like. What matters is on the inside. What comes out of us when we're squeezed is a reflection of our heart. It's a reflection of our character. Jesus says that the mouth is a great indicator of the heart. Our words, both spoken aloud and the words spoken in our minds, are a reflection of our character. Pastor Jeremy, him and I were chatting about this text this week, and he said that there's three things that reveal our true character, three ways in which we can be squeezed. He said trials, temptations, and boredom. Think about that for a second. Jeremy sh shared with me, he said often, these trials, temptation, and boredom reveal who we really are on the inside. During these times, what we do and what we say exposes what we really value and how much we are actually like Jesus. What a powerful, profound, and painful truth. And so I think about the trials in my life, and I think about the trials in your life, both big and small, and I wonder... If you and I were to kind of just step back and look at how we've been living up to today and we were to look at the trials and the temptations and the boredoms in our life, I wonder what those seasons in our life, those, that squeezing, what it might reveal to you and what it might reveal to me about our character. I think of trials big and small as simple as maybe the trial of having someone drive foolishly in your presence on the way to church or work. And I wonder maybe what words spill out of our mouth when that idiot cuts me off. I think of big trials though. The kind of trials that alter the entire course of your life. Crippling losses and hard trials and how, how our heart responds to those. I think of temptations. Big temptations and small temptations. The big temptations and the small ones. Maybe a, a, a slice of pizza on the counter when you know you've already had enough food. That temptation, should I eat that extra slice of pizza? But I think of like the bigger temptations in life and, and, and what that might reveal about the contents of our heart. And then boredom whether it's simply a directionless afternoon or, or a directionless, unfocused life, I think as we begin to assess our hearts and our minds and our character, these things can be great tools. And so as we think about godly character, we, we need to 
provide a little definition to it. We've been trying to provide a meaningful and a pithy definition to each of these markers of discipleship along the way. And I tried my best. And honestly, this is my worst effort on a meaningful definition of godly character. So don't judge me. It's probably going to change in time. But my best effort to provide a, a simple definition to what is godly character is simply this. Godly character is when the heart of the disciple, words, deeds, and attitudes flow from a surrendered Christ-like heart. I'm trying to provide a meaningful definition here. Godly character is when the heart of the disciple, words, deeds, and attitudes flow from a surrendered Christ-like heart. This is clearly a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and I'm trying to factor in all of that. And as I think about godly character, we have to say, what is the character of God? Like, we can speculate what is the character of God. If we know the scriptures, we can, we can begin to uh, sort of draw conclusions about the character of God based on what he's revealed to us. But th- there, is this, there is this section in, in the scriptures where Jesus actually told, or rather where God actually told us about his character. He, he told us what he was like. And I want to encourage you to turn there because I think it's important that we actually turn there in our scriptures. Exodus chapter 34. It's the second cha- uh, book of, the, of, of your Bible. Chapter 34 the majority of the way through the book. We're going to be in Exodus 34. We're going to be in, in verses 5, uh, 6, and 7. Because here as you're turning there, this is the book of Exodus. The nation of Israel had been delivered from the oppressive hand of Egypt. And, and they're, at this point in the scripture, they've, they've, the Exodus has taken place. They're, they're in the desert. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is on the mountain. He's meeting with Yahweh. The terms of the covenant are being established. The law is being given to Moses. And as Moses is meeting with God on on the mountain, the people of of Israel down below, and they're they're worshiping a golden calf. But here's this, the terms of the, the, the covenant are being given. But in this interaction between Yahweh and Moses, God tells us about his character, beginning in verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed to Moses, the Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When the writers of the Bible sought to describe the character of God, they would often refer back to this profound encounter that Moses had with Yahweh on Sinai. Over 20 times, this, this is referenced or requoted throughout the Bible. What is God like? As we talk about godly character, what is the character of God? Well, here's what the character of God is. He is compassionate. Our God is, is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's overflowing in loyal love. Our God is faithful. And I'll also add that he is just. Notice that it says that God keeps his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And so we read here that the loyal love of God extends for thousands of generations, and yet he's still a God of justice. He doesn't turn a blind eye to iniquity. It tells us later in verse 7, he by no means will clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Notice the contrast in numbers here. We read that his steadfast love is for thousands. And when it comes to his justice and dealing with iniquity, it's to the third and fourth generation. We begin to see the heart of God. The gracious 
compassionate, merciful, forgiving heart of our God. Godly character is when our heart begins to reflect that heart. We don't do that by self-will. It's a work of God in us and through us. And so the fourth question is simply this. How did Jesus model godly character? We've been asking this question on each of these, these markers of discipleship. Because Jesus is our Savior, but he's also our model. And that's why we look to the Gospels to look at how Jesus has modeled these things for us. And quite simply, the character of Jesus was perfectly formed. His being and his doing were fully and perfectly united. If character is revealed during trials and temptation and boredom, let's look at Jesus' life. And we see an, un- an unbelievable display of godly character. Think about trials. Is there a greater trial than Jesus in Gethsemane? Or Jesus on the cross at Calvary? What do we see about the character of Jesus in that trial? Do you remember him? On his face in the garden, his sweat becomes his blood. His best friends have fallen asleep as he's agonizing before the Father. Father, take this cup of suffering from me, but not my will be done, but yours be done. We see the character of Jesus in perfectly aligning his will to the Father's, even if it meant suffering. We see him hanging on the cross, and these men who spat upon him and struck him and hurled insults at him, falsely accused him, are watching. His disciples who fled him in his hour of greatest need are watching. He's hanging up there, dying alone. And what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Think about how Jesus responded to his disciples after the resurrection. These men who, who ran away from him in his moment of greatest need, who fell asleep when he begged them to pray for him, how did he respond to them? With grace and with love. We begin to see the heart of Jesus, don't we? What about temptation? Right after Jesus was baptized, the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness where he was confronted by Satan, where he confronted Satan. And, and, and the devil, on three separate occasions, misquoting scripture, tried to get Jesus to, to give in to temptation. How did he respond? Well, Jesus quoted scripture rightly back at the enemy, and he aligned his will perfectly with the will of the Father. We begin to see the heart of Jesus. He was tried in the garden and on Calvary. He was tempted in the wilderness. And he never suffered from boredom because his life was perfectly stewarded his time. We see Jesus engaging with others for their benefit and withdrawing to solitude for the, to, for the nourishment of his soul. A perfectly stewarded, perfectly balanced life. And so as you and I start thinking about character and our own character and godly character and what it means for us to be shaped and to form into the image of Jesus, we've got to begin to look at the example that Jesus has given us. We've got to think to ourselves, man, on my time of greatest sorrow and suffering as I was on my face, God, by his spirit, am I able to say to him, not my will be done, Father, but your will be done? When I've been insulted and hurt and, and people have betrayed me and gone behind my back, am I able to say, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing? And am I able to, to chase people down who have wronged me and to model grace so that they might become brought, brought back in a right relationship with me? When I'm being tempted by the enemy to turn my back on God, do I know the word of God so well that I can, I, can, I can quote it back to the enemy as he tries to distort God's truth that I might stay in the center of God's will? Is my time perfectly stewarded with engagement and, and withdrawal? Engaging others for their benefit and for the glory of God, withdrawing for the nourishment of my own soul. This is the character of Christ. And as we talk about godly character in our lives, it is when our character and our heart reflects the very heart and the very character of Jesus. This brings us to the fifth question. What did Jesus teach us about godly character? 
And I know we've been unpacking different scriptures up to this point. Let's take another brief look at this verse in Luke. Here's Jesus, and he's teaching his sermon on the plain. And if you go back and you read the sermon that precedes this illustration or this metaphor about good fruit and bad fruit, he's, he's addressing a lot of the very same character attributes that we see of God in Exodus 34. He's talking about good fruit and bad fruit, but the good fruit that Jesus is talking about is mercy and love and forgiveness. The very same characteristics we see the Father speak, or Yahweh speak to, to Moses on Mount Sinai. Essentially what Jesus is teaching his new disciples here in this sermon is he's saying that, that you need to have a heart like the heart of God, a merciful heart, a gracious heart, a heart that abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness that is slow to anger. This is the good fruit that the good tree bears. The good tree that's roots sink down into the very character of God will bear this, type of, this kind of fruit. And the bad fruit, he talks about evil fruit and bad fruit, that, that is also bad. It's the opposite of that. Bad fruit is not mercy, but ruthlessness. Bad fruit is not grace, but it's condemnation. Bad fruit is not love, but it's hate. Explosive hate. It's faithlessness and it's explosive wrath and not being slow to anger. And earlier in his teaching in verse 40 of chapter 6 here of Luke, Jesus says that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. The ability for the disciples to grow in godliness, both them then and us today, that we might have a godly character. We are rooted, we are anchored to Jesus if this is our hope. And then he finishes his teaching with a very well-known a very well-known parable. Look at verse 46 through 49. we got to read it. Abel will sing the song. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the streams broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So Jesus is using these two powerful metaphors for what it looks like for his disciples to sink their roots down deep into the character of God, that, that you too may bear the fruit of godly character, and, and to build your house on this solid rock of God's character, that you will withstand the storms of life. The, the life of the disciple must be rooted in and built upon Jesus, drawing from his very character, anchored to his very character. Through temptations and trials, they're going to come, they're going to rage but if we build in such a way, if we root in such a way, God, by his spirit, will give us the strength to endure. And so this is a picture of being with God. I mean, roots don't grow overnight. Building a house doesn't happen overnight. There's this picture of longevity. Roots slowly sink down and find nourishment, and they grab hold of the earth, and they're able to withstand that they might bear good fruit. There's a picture here of being with not just doing, not just, not just applying plastic fruit to the outside of the tree, not just donning an external spirituality or a religious externalism. There is a heart component just even in the way in which these metaphors unfold. I read this week that the active life in the world for God can only properly flow from a deep inner life with God. 
when we integrate our doing for and our being with, our lives have a beauty, a harmony, and a clarity that makes the spiritual life both full and joyful. You see, godly character is when our heart reflects the heart of Jesus. And if our desire is to be shaped and formed and molded into the image of Jesus, and, and if the desire for God, for his disciples, is that our character reflects the very heart of Jesus, this leads us to our, our sixth question. And this is the big question. This is the diagnostic question we have to ask. Where, where am I? Where are you? Where are we concerning godly character? How, how are we doing in this area of godly character? Is my heart a reflection of the heart of Jesus? God tells us what he's like. He, he shares his character with us. He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's just. So if my character is to look like that, we have to ask some questions today. To say that you have a godly character, for me to say that I have a godly character, I have to say some things. I have to take an honest look at myself. So let's have an honest look today at ourselves. And I have to ask myself this question. Am I merciful and compassionate? Ask yourself that. With, with gentleness and patience, uh, do I hold back punishment, punishment from those who I think deserve punishment? Am I gracious and compassionate, and, or am I merciful and compassionate, rather, towards the people in my life that have wronged me? Am I gracious? Uh, do I show favor to those who are undeserving and keep no record of when I've been wronged? Am, am I slow to anger? Do I model restraint and patience toward those who offend me and the people who are closest to me? Do they feel that I'm safe and I'm easy to be around? Do the people who love me the most, do they have to walk on eggshells when they're around me? Am I abounding in steadfast love? Is my love fickle and stingy or not? If my love is not fickle or stingy, I never withhold my love. I, I never demand performance before love is given, but I willingly extend my love even to the undeserving, and my love never fails and never gives up. Am I faithful? Do those who know me best see me as faithful and stable and upright and trustworthy and reliable with an unshakable life that is anchored and rooted in God and his truth? Do the people who know me best and love me see me this way? But here's the real question. Do my enemies see me this way? Do my enemies see me as merciful? Do my enemies see me as gracious or slow to anger? Do my enemies see me abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? It's not just about those who are closest to us. It's, it's anybody who knows us. So think about it. Would, would, your, would your spouse, would your parents... Would your siblings, would your closest friends, would the people who know you describe you in these ways? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, faithful, abounding in love. As a church, we took a survey, and we've been referring to this survey over the last several weeks as we've done this series, and we're going to actually invite you in the next week or two. We've sort of reworked this survey. We're going to invite everybody in our church to take this survey so we can continue to grow in godliness and, and understand where we've been. But we asked some of these questions of you, and over a hundred of us took the survey. We do okay in the area of godly character compared to the other eight characteristics of a disciple, but, but, but let me ask these questions to you again, because I want us just to be honest with ourselves in this moment. Um, do my good works flow out of who I am, or am I uh, on the inside, now, do my good works flow out of who I am on the inside, or do they serve as a veneer that covers up or makes up for spiritual deficiencies? Second question, is there ample evidence in my life that God is continuing to change me to be more and more like him? 
in the area of integrity and honesty and humility and love and patience and all, all the such. In moments of self-reflection, am I more concerned with accurately seeing myself as I am rather than how others perceive me? Am I humbly dependent on the Holy Spirit to lead and empower all that I do in life for the glory of God? So good questions for us to think about. Okay, we've been doing the scale each week, a continuum of one to five. Let's do it again this week, okay? One is failing, five is flourishing. Let's put ourselves, you don't have to tell anybody, this is between you and God. Are you a one, two, three, four, or five? If you're a one over here, you're failing. This is a godless character. Just be honest with yourself today. No, no condemning fingers being pointed. I just want us to do a good self, self-assessment. If, if there is godless character that, that is currently taking place in your life, you're, you're unaware and unconcerned about Jesus, you're living oblivious to God and God's desire, completely ruled by self. You're Lord of your own life. And when you're squeezed, if you're honest, godlessness comes out. That's one. If you're a two, there's a recognition of godly character in your life. You're saying, hey man, there is a chasm between the person that I am and the character of Jesus. And I actually see that chasm. I'm a long way off, but at least I recognize that it's there. And there's the beginning of conviction to want to grow in godliness. Maybe that's you at two. If you're a three, you are, you are desiring godly character. You're beginning to make significant efforts in your life, incorporating disciplines and practices that might help you make these changes that, that will shape you and mold you more and more into godly character. That's a three. If you're a four, you're modeling godly character. And those who know you and love you, they look at your life, and when you're pressed, the fruit of your character and the fruit of your lips is more often a reflection of Jesus than it's not. Those around you often see Jesus in the way you live in both good times and bad times. If that's you, you're a four. If you're a five, you have perfect character. Your heart is fully surrendered to God, and when you're squeezed in good times and bad, the only thing that ever comes out is godliness in Christ-like character. So where would you rate yourself? From failing to flourishing, one to five. Again, like you said every week, there's no shame in this discussion. We want to grow. We just want to grow as disciples. And in order for us to grow, we need to kind of know where we're starting. And this leads us to the seventh question. How can we grow? How can you grow? How can I grow? How can we grow in this area? No matter where you are on a scale of one to five. How can we begin to grow? How can we begin to have, uh, create, don a posture in our life where our heart is being molded and shaped into the image of Jesus? And, and that's really where we have to start. The temptation always for us as human beings is to start going to a checklist or the things that we have to do, but that's not how we start here. It's all about posture. We can't white-knuckle godly character. It is a fruit of God's Spirit. It's all about God in us. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 talks about the difference between selfish character and godly character. He says in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, he's talking about left to our own, apart from God at work in us, apart from God in us, what's the fruit of our life going to look like? And here's what he says. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then in the very next verse, Galatians 5, 22 through 24, he, he paints this picture of what a life surrendered to God looks like. A life that is being fed and nourished through uh, and abiding and the work of the Spirit in us. He says the fruit of the Spirit is this. And you guys know this verse if you've been in the church. Love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what a godly heart, this is what godly character, the kind of fruit, a heart that is molded into the image of Jesus will bear. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And so as we think about the Christian life, we, 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 have, we have to get into these, this idea of, of justification and sanctification. Now, I know that those are church words, so let me just define them for you a little bit. Justification is this, it's being declared righteous. It's an outside-in reality. I'm borrowing from, from a theologian I read this week. Justification is this outside-in reality. To be justified is when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and a verdict of legal acquittal which comes wholly from heaven, has been declared over us. It's an outside-in reality. It's earned by someone outside of us. And in no way have we helped or contributed to this declaration of innocence. Justification is the work of God by his Son. We've been declared righteous because of the cross, because Jesus died in our place, paid the penalty our sin deserves. This is, a, this is, a, this is an incredible truth. We've gone from death to life, wholly from what God has done for us. This is justification. And then there's this word we, we talk about in the church a lot, which is sanctification. Whereas justification is being declared righteous, sanctification is growing in righteousness or growing in godliness throughout the course of the believer. It's the redeemed, justified saint growing in godliness, growing deeper and more godly as his image is being shaped and formed into us over the course of our lifetime. External rules applied on the outside do not bring sanctification. So rather, whereas justification is an outside-in reality, sanctification is an inside-out reality. We can't apply topically things and have it transform our heart. It doesn't work. It's just, it's topical. It's like, imagine you're raising a five-year-old and they're hungry. You don't put a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on their back or on their knee. They have to ingest it. It has to come inside of them so they can be nourished and grow when we are growing in godliness, it's a deep nourishment of the soul. Listen to what one author writes. He says, One of the great mistakes made generation after generation throughout church history has been to slather rules onto our behaviors and think that external behavior is what fosters or even accurately reflects vital spiritual growth. This is an inside-out reality. It's a, it's a life that has been redeemed and saved wholly by a work outside of us. And justification is an inside or is an outside-in reality. But this, this daily coming to God and not just applying the to-dos as an external, but, but laying our heart before him that he would mold and shape and form us. This is the picture of sanctification. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, he's kind of talking about what, what the world looks like that, that applies all this stuff on the outside. First, he gives us a whole list of sins in, in, in chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. He says, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient. He goes on and on and on. He finishes by saying they'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he says this in 2 Timothy 3, 5. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Do you see the danger of an external religious, uh, a religious externalism? Do you see the dangers of this? is we can fool everybody around us into thinking our heart has been transformed when we don our religious practices like a, like, a, like a badge of honor or like an Awana vest for adults. And we walk into church, you see all my religious accomplishments, my heart is corrupt. That's not the kind of spirituality we're talking about here. And it's so dangerous. Think of the people who had the most powerful position in the time of Jesus. They were, they were Pharisees who, who were clean on the outside but rotten on the inside like tombs. And Jesus hated that. 
And when we start talking about godly character, we cannot default to a list of to-dos apart from God. It is a surrendered life. And so we have to get our mind right when it comes to this. And so I lifted this from another theologian. I'm going to share with you three ways we get it wrong and one way we might get it right. One way we get this wrong is we think it's God then me. God then me is this idea that, that God saves me and then I do the rest. Faith alone gets me in and then effort moves me along. My own effort apart from God. It's God then me. So really the, the whole point of my spiritual life is about what I'm doing and about me. That very much leads to donning an external religious practice. The second way we get it wrong is we say God not me. God saves me, and then I do nothing. My efforts mean nothing. I bear no responsibility for my growth. This is not what the scriptures teach. It leads to, leads to spiritual apathy. Zero growth. And then where we get a little bit closer, but still wrong, is the third one. We call it God plus me. God does some, I do some. Spiritual growth is a collaborative effort. We're partners. We're each contributing something. It's God plus me. And we kind of get this weird thing that's happening that's close to right. But, 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 but as you look at the scriptures, how it really paints it is this last one. It's really, and this is a picture of us being united to Christ. It's God in me. It's God in me. It's this picture of us being united to Christ. Here's how one theologian puts it. I want to read it. The proper approach would have both God and me entirely filling the circle. The two agents are overlaid. This is God in me. God does everything to save me. And then by his Holy Spirit, he unites me spiritually to his son. The result is that in our growth in holiness, as Jonathan Edwards puts it, quote, we are not merely passive in it, nor does God do some and we do the rest, but God does all and we do all. We are in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. This approach holds together both human responsibility and divine sovereignty in how we move forward spiritually. God in me. Godly character flows from our unity with Jesus. The Apostle Paul giving testimony about what God had done in him. Galatians 2 verse 20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. God in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This picture of Paul dying to self and living anew to faith is this picture of the person who lives with Christ in him. There is a being united with Christ. This is a being with God that precedes the doing or doing for God. This, this avoids our temptation to, to make it about religious externalism. I die to self. It is Christ who lives in me. And so I want to share with you a couple quick points of application today as we think about how can we grow in this area. I'm borrowing from a book called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by Peter Scazzaro. I'm going to share with you four simple ways that you and I can foster godly character in our lives, that we can be with God before we concern ourselves with doing for God. Four things. Here's the first one. Make a radical decision. This is still countercultural. We have, to make a, we have to make a radical decision if this is the kind of spirituality we really want. Because I'm telling you right now, it is very easy to warm a seat in a church and go through the motions and be allowed to be comfortable your entire life. It's very easy. I'm thinking of St. Anthony. If you go back and you read a little bit of church history, 
when Constantine became a Christian and the, and the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as its, as its state religion and all of a sudden the church was no longer persecuted but great comfort was given to the church. It was funded and those who were once thriving spiritually under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire suddenly were sort of lost. They didn't know how to live out a spirituality that wasn't marked with suffering and, and the church s- struggled for a season. And then Anthony was the first desert father. He was the first monk and when he was like 20 years old in like t- 270 AD or something, Uh, Anthony actually fled to the desert. He wanted to be with God and not just live this comfortable life, and so he fled to the desert. He made this radical decision that pursuing Jesus was was more important than anything else, and so he fled. I read this week that the radical decision that you and I need to make is to end our addiction not to drugs and alcohol, but to tasks and to doing. We must flee from a life of overcommitment and hurry in order to learn how to be before we do, and this is a radical decision. You know, it was two years ago today that I woke up for the first time as a resident of Medford, Oregon. It was the night before that I pulled into town. I stayed with Liz and Doug Forrester, and this morning was the first morning I woke up, and you know me, I went to the mountains, and I spent my first 12 hours here just walking through the mountains, excited to be living in the mountains. But I've been reflecting this week on why did we move here? Why, why did I uproot my family, and why did we move 2,400 2, miles across the country? And there's a lot of reasons why, but one of the reasons is that I was just really tired of seeing church as usual. I worked in a large church in a metropolitan area, and there were some really great things that happened there, don't get me wrong. But we were a church that was drinking the Kool-Aid of church growth, applying best practices about systems that, that kept people in, coming in the doors, that kept people there just long enough to continue to grow the church. And I was beginning to feel that we were embracing a model of spirituality that fostered immaturity and didn't call people into depth. And I didn't want to be part of that anymore. Our church was big and influential. I was speaking at conferences. I just didn't want to be a part of that anymore. And as I wrestled with God, I ended up finding this little church in Medford, Oregon, where I talked to the elders, and they talked to me, and they began to talk about a desire to see disciples made, real disciples, deep disciples who really walk and reflect Jesus, who have the character of Christ in their hearts. And they, 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 they articulated a desire to do whatever we've got to do as a church to grow in that area, believe that we really wanted to make disciples of Jesus who could be raised up and sent out for the glory of God, that we would give our lives for the sake of the gospel. And so we moved our family all the way across the country. I've not been disappointed. I'm so grateful to work with the men I work with and the, disciples, and the elders that are over the top of me, the vision God has given our church. It's so encouraging. I wanted more for me. I wanted more for my family. I want more for our church. I want more for the church. That's the reason for this series. We want something deeper. And so we have to make a radical decision. Am I really going to pursue that? Because it's really easy not to. Second thing we've got to do is we've got to feel our feelings. This is not my words. This is Scazzaro's words, but I understand what he's saying here. We have to feel our feelings. I had a good friend in Milwaukee who was a pastor at a large, influential church in the suburbs. Him and I were casual friends. He went backpacking a few times, didn't know him real deep. And then one day I noticed on his Facebook page that he was no longer a pastor. He was looking for a job. And I thought, Andy, what in the heck? I reached out to him. He said, I was embarrassed to talk to you. Can we have coffee? I'm like, yes, let's have coffee. I was assuming it was a moral failure of some kind. And we sat down, he, he shared with me a heartbreaking story. He shared with me the story of a, of a superficial spirituality, highly gifted guy, lots of character, or lots of, lots of competency, lots of charisma, great leader, great, I mean, just tons of gifts, but his character wasn't where it needed to be, and no one was pressing in on his character. He got himself involved in church, had all the gifts to make people li- like him, and they gave him a big platform, he had lots of influence, but his character didn't match. And he knew it, but he didn't know how to tell anybody. He couldn't confess it to anybody because he'd feel like he'd pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. 
And then one day, his relationship with a coworker took a step too far. And in a very short period of time, he was caught up in a full affair. Fell under deep conviction after several months in this affair. Decided to confess it to his wife before he got found out. And fought to save his marriage. And I've been very impressed with my brother, the way he's confessed and repented and pursued the deeper things of God. He ended up coming to my church and just becoming a congregant at my church. We became much closer friends. There was a group of men at my last church uh, that was going through a course like we have here, like LEAD, these men who desired to be pastors. And I asked Andy to come and speak. I said, Andy, would you come and share with our men what you wish you knew then that you know now? If you could speak to your 26-year-old self that stepped into ministry and was, were given the keys to the kingdom because of your gifts, what would you say to that man today? And he said many things, but one of the things I'll never forget that Andy said, he said that I wish I would have paid attention to why I was the way I was. I wish I would have paid attention to why I was the way I was. I never did. I put a topical spirituality over the, the lusts of my heart. I turned to pornography, didn't want to tell anybody, so I put a topical spirituality over it. I turned away from my wife because it was too hard, turned to the arms of another woman. I never paid attention to why I was the way I was. Never addressed my family of origin. Never addressed why and where these wrong thoughts entered my brain. I just put a topical spirituality over it. Nobody pressed me, and I blew the church up. I'm reminded when I was a kid, my, my parents would have me go weed the garden, and my dad would say, you got to pull it by the roots. And I never did. I'd go out there, and I'd just mow them off with the hoe six minutes before he got home. I would spread dirt over the weeds so he would never know, and then the next day there would be weeds everywhere. My dad knew exactly what I did. But what my dad knew was, if I don't pull it up by the roots, I'm not changing anything. And in fact, the, the weeds in the, in the rows of, of, of vegetables and fruits actually stole nutrients from the fruit, and it actually was, a, it was, a counter, it was counterproductive to fruit production. We've got to pull it up from the root. When it starts coming to our own lives, we ask this question to feel our feelings. Why am I the way I am? Why do I respond the way I respond? We have to get to the root of the issue. We cannot apply a topical spirituality. It does not work. If you look at the scriptures, you might say, this is like, this is like touchy-feely. We see it all throughout the scriptures. We see Job ranting before God in his pain. We see Jeremiah's depression before God. We see Moses in anguish in the wilderness before God. We see David's raw emotions in the Psalms pouring out his heart before God. In the presence of God, they express their emotions with unashamed freedom. We need to do the same. Ask the question, why am I the way I am? Why do I lash out to the people I love the most? Why do I reach for my phone the second I have a free moment? Why am I constantly distracting myself? Why am I always seeing the faults of those I love and refusing to see their best qualities? Why am I angry? Why am I always in a hurry? Ask the questions. Feel your feelings. And begin to incorporate practices into your spiritual life that give you space to think deeply about those things. Go back and listen to Jeremy's teaching two weeks ago on emotional health, number one. Number two, journal. Create space. And here's the third thing you need to do. You and I, this, is, this is a corrective to our church culture. Integrate silence. That's the third thing we need to do. Integrate silence into our spiritual lives. One of my favorite authors says that it's in solitude that we learn to see ourselves not in light of the results of our work, but we learn to see ourselves and know who we are apart from the results of our work. It is so hard for us to do that if we're busy all the time. And to struggle to find silence because it just presses against everything in our being and there's always something more to do. Our life is a constant decision of what we're going to do with our time. We have to decide between better and best. And better wins far too often. So in silence, we, 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 we learn to let go and surrender our will over to God's will. I think about a child that's throwing a temper tantrum and you can't reason with them. 
When they get tired and they get exhausted and they finally stop and a parent goes over there and gets on their knees, grabs their little chin, and with eye contact, in that silence, finally speaks the truth, that's when, you, that's when parenting happens, right? If we're always throwing a tantrum or always busy, there's never a moment for us to hear the voice of God, ever. We've got to have silence in our lives. In silence, we let go of our agendas. We, we allow communion with God to become the core of our lives. Think of Martha and Mary. Mary doing all the work, all the activity, preparing. Martha sitting at his feet. Jesus, do something. Mary, he says, Mary has chosen the good portion. Mary, who chose to sit at the feet of God, not Martha, chose the good portion. She let go of the agenda and communed with Jesus. In silence, we let go. We allow God to deeply transform us. This is something someone else wrote. It's in silence that the veneer of our heart begins to get peeled back, and we can begin to address the core of who we really are. In silence, we let go. We open ourselves up to hear God speak. I read this week that when we integrate intentional silence into our prayer life, we enter into a two-way relationship that allows us to abide with God and also listen to God. And I know it's hard. I'm mean, talking to a guy who's probably ADHD, has never been diagnosed. I like to be busy, like to go. Learning to incorporate silence into my life has been the mission of my life the last nine years, but it's been one of the hardest things I've ever done. Got to start somewhere. How about this? Turn off the radio when you get in the car. Just start there. Just commit when you're in the car to having silence and turn your heart heavenward. How's that for a start? And you know what? There's so many great podcasts, and I'm all for learning. How many podcasts do you need to listen to, man? Seriously. In the Christian world, like I hear people listen to five and six sermons a week. It's like, you're not obedient to the first one. Why do you need six more? <laughs> turn off the podcasts. Turn off the distractions. Take 10 minutes in the morning before you get out of bed. Sit up. Let your feet dangle. Take 10 minutes before you get up and brush your teeth and take a shower. 10 minutes to orient your heart. To spend some time in silence and prayer. Turn off your phone. I'm speaking to myself right now. My kids would say, Dad... You're the one to preach. Go for a walk. That's the way, that's how you can start. I think in our lives, it's, I think I would, I would advocate, I would advocate for every treat, for every one of you. I would advocate that you fight to have a day or two days or even a week where you ret retreat for silence. I think it's so important. It is a massive corrective to our over-busy, over-committed hearts. And be patient with yourself. The first time I tried to do silence, I made it about three minutes. I'm like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. I'm like, what, this is so dumb. What am I? I not every, my mind went everywhere. It's like, it's, you've got to detox yourself. It takes time. Be patient. But pursue silence with the Lord. Pursue solitude. It's such a vital discipline in our lives today. And lastly, commune with Jesus throughout the day. Commune with Jesus. Talk with him. Create space to commune with him in prayer. Don't separate the sacred and the secular. It's a whole of life thing. So how can you know if, you are, if your doing is exceeding your being? Here's 10 questions. If this is you, then we need to practice on being, right? I can't shake the pressure I feel from having too much to do and too little time. I'm ignoring the stress, anxiety, and tightness in my body. I'm concerned with what others think. I'm often fearful about the future. I'm always rushing. I'm defensive and easily offended. I'm preoccupied and distracted. I, I, I don't know what that word is. Oh, I, uh, I give off quick opinions and judgments. I feel enthusiastic or threatened by the success of others. I spend more time talking than listening. If that's you, maybe it's time to think about being instead of doing.
It was really great to be with the church on Friday night. Teresa, grateful for Teresa leading that and, leading, and spearheading a time of worship for our congregation. It was wonderful, Teresa. Communion. Spend an hour just singing worship to the Lord with my brothers and sisters. No agenda. And it was really nice for me, honestly, Teresa, I'm grateful that you didn't ask me to share a verse or teach. It's like it's so rare that that happens for me as a pastor. Just to be able to go and be was just blessing. And to see my, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I see people in our church setting boundaries and saying no and making retreats. We're doing this, church, in certain ways. We can continue to grow. Godly character is when our heart reflects the heart of Jesus. Lastly, lastly and very quickly, the last question we've been asking throughout this series is how can we help each other grow? And godly, how can we help each other in this area in godly character? Well, I think the death of godly character, the death of, of our hearts being shaped and formed in, in, in modeling the heart of Jesus is a culture that doesn't deal honestly with the heart. It is so easy to not deal honestly with our heart, both personally and interpersonally. So how can we help each other? Let's step towards authenticity. Let's step toward vulnerability. What keeps our hearts from being transformed into Christ-likeness is a culture that allows religious externalism to thrive. Let's not do that. Can we do something deeper, church? Can we commit to doing something deeper? I, 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 there's so many of you here that are older. I'm looking at so many of you that have, that have been in the church for 20, 30, 40 years. And, I, and I, you have wisdom that I can learn from. And, I, and, I, and I'm, not thinking, I'm not claiming I know it all up here today. I just... As I talk with saints that have walked with Jesus for any length of time, I just sense that there is this deep hunger in, in, in the people of God for something deeper. For godly character, for real, authentic, heart-level transformation. Can we just fight against defaulting to, to, to plastic, mask-wearing, superficial Christianity? Can we fight against that? And hold me accountable to it. I, seriously, I, we're journeying together in this. Can you imagine... Honestly, think about this. Think about a body of believers, 300 of us today, 250 of us, however many are in this room. However many call Heritage Home, 350, 450, not very many for a town our size. But can you imagine if, if the men and women of our church pursued authentic, uh, godly character, and if God, by his spirit, through surrendered saints, began to shape and form his character into people in profound ways that, that it was really and honestly spilling out, that, that we go back to Exodus 34, that, that there was a, a mercy and, and, and compassion that, that, that was on our life like fruit that other people got to, to, to participate in, a, a, a steadfast, abundant love, grace, flowing from us, being slow to anger, faithfulness. If this was an authentic fruit that was just flowing, just producing crops from the people of our church, falling uh, into our neighborhoods and into our schools and our places of work, how might God use a small church that meets in a high school in Medford, Oregon, to, to, to begin to, to reveal the truth of who Jesus is to a city and then beyond? Oh, I just, I think about it. I dream about it. This is what God wants for us. May our hearts reflect the very heart of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm grateful for the men and women here today, and God, I'm grateful that, that, that this is not something you tell us to do and then step back and fold your arms as we struggle in our own strength. I'm so thankful, Jesus, that, it's, it's, that we have died to self, and you now live in us. And as we are united to you, through the working of your spirit in our lives as redeemed saints, God, you begin to produce this fruit in us. So God, I just pray for, for our church. 
God, I pray for us individually. I pray for us collectively. God, I pray that as we look at our lives, Lord, that, that there wouldn't be shame in this conversation, but hope and excitement that you could do this in us. That you can begin to work in us in such a way that we are characterized by being a people of compassion. That we are characterized by being a people who, who walk in steadfast love. That it abounds from us, God. That we are a people who models the kind of grace that we ourselves stand in every day. The kind of people that, that are, are faithful, reliable, trustworthy, unshakable. That we might be slow to anger and that we would contend for your kingdom in our community and beyond. So God, have your way with us. Have your way with our church. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.